Hey, Tom Tilly here. This is a special episode of The Briefing with Mary Trump. You're about to hear the full-length version of my interview with Donald Trump's niece. She's known him since she was a child. Her dad, Freddie, was Donald's older brother. And from early childhood moments like playing baseball with her uncle until now where he's refusing to concede defeat in the recent US election, Mary Trump can offer some fascinating insights into the most famous man in the world. A man that historians will be studying for a long, long time, I reckon. And they do well to read her book, which I have. It's fascinating. Mary Trump's book is called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Now, as you're about to hear, family's quite important in this story. It really was the father that shaped the son. Mary Trump, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. As Donald Trump's niece and as someone with a PhD in psychology, I I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on what might be going through Donald Trump's mind right now as he refuses to concede the lost election and your sense of what might happen next. But first, let's go back to the start of the story. As your book reveals, to understand Donald Trump, you need to understand his family, which is your family. And the most powerful figure in that family was his dad, Fred, your grandfather, He started the the family property empire and he called the shots in the family. So tell us about Fred Trump. Who was he and what role did he have in shaping his fourth child, Donald Trump? My grandfather was a very driven man who had one interest, essentially, and that was his uh, empire and increasing its value and increasing its scope. He was also, unfortunately, a sociopath um, because he really didn't care about human connection except insofar as uh, somebody could be of use to him. And that included his own children. So um, all five of his kids were deeply damaged by uh, the experience of being Fred Trump's children. And the, the two who suffered the most probably were my dad, uh, Fred Jr., uh, whom everybody called Freddie, and Donald, who was seven and a half years younger. So I think the simplest way to put it is that because my dad was the oldest son, because he was the namesake, he was expected to be the heir to the throne, as it were. And as he grew older, my grandfather realized that he just wasn't the kind of person that my grandfather needed him to be. My dad was kind, he was sensitive, he was really funny, he had interests outside of real estate, and my grandfather just didn't understand him. So he set his sights on Donald, who, having watched the uh, abuse my dad suffered at my grandfather's hands, learned at a very early age not just what he needed to be in order to get my grandfather's attention and approval, but what he should not be. And what he should not be was anything like Freddie. So as I said, that meant being kind and sensitive. It meant being able to admit you were wrong. Uh, So Donald really was stuck in a very difficult situation uh, growing up, knowing that the only way to escape my grandfather's wrath was to become the killer and the tough guy and the person who, who would do anything, who would win at all costs. So was that a quest to be loved on Donald Trump's part? Because you also write that his mother was quite sick um, when he was young and so his father had a big role in, in raising him and that 
these were the behaviors that were rewarded. Yeah, I, I think all children seek love, right? It, mm-hmm. That's just human. So it's impossible for a child to understand that their parents are incapable of giving that to them. So in my family, I mean, certainly for, for Donald and his siblings, the closest they were going to get was approval. Unfortunately, though, because my grandfather treated his family as if it was a zero-sum game, only one person could win. And that meant that Donald was going to do whatever he had to do. And, and that kind of isolated from him from his siblings. It isolated him from his schoolmates. And I think he lost a lot of who he was or who, who he could have been, I should say, in order to ingratiate himself uh, with his dad. So what was their family life like? Because um, Fred, the grandfather, basically was a self-made man, Donald Trump, much, much less so despite his claims. Did they have a very wealthy, luxurious, privileged childhood? Yeah, it's really interesting because my grandfather was extremely wealthy. But you would not have known that from how they uh, grew up. You know, they had a big house uh, in a very nice neighborhood in Queens, New York. But it was not an extravagant lifestyle by any stretch of the imagination. My grandfather was a really provincial person. Um, You know, when my dad and his older sister were growing up, they went to public school. They took the subway. So it wasn't until Donald was in his 20s and, you know, sought to become this very flashy um, guy who wanted people to know how rich he was, <clears throat> which he was, by the way, simply by virtue of my grandfather's wealth, that, that anybody would have known just how, how much money the family had. So you, you talk about the tactics Donald Trump used to try and, I guess, build his profile and grow his father's business. Um, your father did most of his business in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, Donald tried to tank that to Manhattan and beyond and, and did with varying levels of success. But the, the sort of tactics we've witnessed in the last five years as, as we've watched him on the global stage of misinformation and all kinds of different tactics that no one's ever witnessed before in a US president. You write that he was using those same tactics very early on in his life in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, One thing Donald was always quite good at was manipulating situations to his benefit. And because he had the veneer of success, because it was so important to my grandfather that Donald be seen as this brilliant entrepreneur, self-made man, um, it actually carried a lot of weight in other circumstances. So, you know, the, my, my grandfather initially enabled Donald and then the media picked up on that and then the banks picked up on that. And Donald learned that, you know, all he needed to do was sort of brazen his way through things and people would believe him. People would take his word for everything. Yeah, and funnily, it seems only now, right at the end of this term of his presidency, did the big TV networks really call him out on his misinformation. It was a, an incredibly important moment, I think, when you know Fox News, for example, stopped rolling on his press conference after the election where he was 
spinning a whole lot of mistruths about the result in this alleged fraud. But the media seemed in the 70s and 80s to lap it up and, and he never seemed to pay the price for misinformation and even lies. No, he never did. And I think if if the media back then, and we're, we're talking primarily about the New York media, if they had done their jobs, uh, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation because he was allowed to spin all of these untruths uh, and get credit for things for which he didn't deserve credit to um, get loans that he would never have been able to get if the banks had had done their due diligence. So we ended up in a position in the late 80s and 90s where Donald had, had created such a disaster, had lost so much money that the banks essentially you know, had to prop him up so that they they wouldn't lose their investments. So it was just this incredible series of failures that were so large that in a weird way, they enabled him to keep, quote unquote, succeeding. Because at the worst of it, his companies filed for like six bankruptcies in the late 80s and early 90s. And because the only asset he had anymore was his lifestyle, The banks were funding him. The banks put him on an allowance of $450,000 a month just for his personal expenses so they could continue to spin this this, uh, fairy tale about Donald, the self-made entrepreneur. So what was your relationship with him like? You were his niece. Um, You knew him on a very personal level, as as, personal as you could be with Donald Trump. Tell us about the (laughs) moments that you shared with him. You know, when I was a kid, we spent a lot of time in my grandparents' house. And whenever Donald was there, uh, he was usually he spent most of his time with my grandfather because they they had a very quite strange symbiotic relationship. But, you know, we'd we'd, he'd play ball with us in the backyard. And um, I was the youngest grandchild at the time because um, my I have one older cousin and all of my other cousins are Donald's kids and they're much, much younger. So I did not grow up with them. So I was a little kid. I was the only girl. And Donald would, uh, whenever he played with us, we played, we played uh, catch with a hardball, a baseball. And, um, you know, he never pulled any punches. He would throw that ball as hard as he possibly could at me. <laughs> and if I caught it, great. If I didn't, you know, luckily I'd ever broke my nose or anything, but hmm. he just could never, like he couldn't even moderate his behavior around little kids. Like he always had to be the best the guy who won, the guy who threw the ball the hardest. So I can't say we were close exactly, but, you know, we got along fine. And it wasn't until I was uh, in my 20s and he hired me to write his third book that I actually got to spend time with him consistently. I had a I had a desk in his office and I would uh, stop in to see him every day and we would chat. And, um, you know, we always got along. Um, but as you suggested, you don't really get close with him Mm. because he's exactly the same person in all situations. Like he has no private self. So what would you talk about? What would be the sort of conversation you guys would have if you were spending time together? We would talk about, uh, well, he would, because I didn't know anything about New York City gossip. He would talk about gossip. He would sit behind his desk and, and uh, one of his secretaries would hand him 
every single newspaper clipping and magazine article that mentioned him. So he'd go through the articles and he would sometimes write comments to the reporter who'd written it. And he would see what I thought and he would he would ask my advice about what he should write or if I thought what he had written was good. <laughs> and it was just this really kind of bizarre ritual that he went through every day. And we traveled together. So the conversations were quite superficial. And when um, my time with him came to an end, because uh, the publisher didn't even know that he had hired me and they wanted him to hire a different person, essentially Donald fired me, but he had the publisher do it. So mm. my time with him came to an end and I, I realized that um, I had no idea what he actually did all day in terms of running his business, which would have made writing a book about it really difficult. You're listening to Mary Trump on this special weekend episode of The Briefing. All right, we're talking to Mary Trump, the estranged niece of Donald Trump. She's written a book called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Uh, This is a special episode of The Briefing. Mary, the picture you paint is, to put it frankly, very unflattering of Donald Trump, but 73 million Americans voted for him this month. So why do you think he holds so much appeal to so many Americans? Yeah, that is a heartbreaking number, isn't it? I have to be honest with you. Uh, I can't be objective about this. No, I imagine. It, It is impossible for me to understand why anybody sees anything to admire in this person. I've tried really hard uh, for the sake of, you know, fairness to try to think of something. And there's not one redeeming characteristic he has. So I think for some people, it's just, you know what, they're Republicans, they're going to vote Republican. That's just the way it is. But beyond that, um, you know, he has given people in this country permission to be very boldly racist, to be boldly misogynistic. And I think that appeals to them. We also, you know, as in any other society, we have our fair share of people who have authoritarian personalities. And those are the weak people who follow the leader who is the strong man. Um, I just didn't realize how many of them there were. So it's pretty depressing, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting you say he's given permission for people to be racist. Um, One interesting explanation I've heard for why he's so popular, and this is from Sam Harris, a well-known American writer who's not a fan of Donald Trump, but he says that he doesn't try and take a morally superior position to anyone. He doesn't sort of give any indication that he's a better person or or stands on any high moral ground. He doesn't necessarily tell the truth. He doesn't do the right thing. Um, he doesn't play by the rules. And that allows people to feel like they're not being spoken down to, whereas the other side of politics that, you know, is trying to call out racism, you know, essentially fighting for equality, but often making tough judgment calls on, on people's behaviour feels really condescending to a lot of Americans and they really like someone that stood up them in that way. What do you make of that analysis? I think there's some truth to that. Um, but it's also, it doesn't get us all the way there because, um, 
Donald is also an incredibly arrogant person. Uh, so I think it's a combination between what you just said, mm. um, you know, the sense of feeling validated and understood, uh, which is a lot better than feeling criticized. You know, people who yeah. are racist and misogynistic, when they get called out on it, they think that they're being uh, not just criticized, which of course they're being criticized. They're, they, they feel like the other side uh, thinks they're bad people. Yeah which, you know, they may be, um, but that just puts them in a defensive stance, which is, makes it even more difficult for them to examine what might be going on. And they don't have to do that if the person leading them feels the same way they do, right? Yeah. So that's a, that, that is a big part of it. But I think the other part of it is the authoritarian tendencies that people have. These are weak people who recognize in Donald a similar weakness? Well, but it and looks like are, a, it, it looks like a strength, though. And and when you mm -hmm. sort of take a simplistic view on his business success, it all points towards a man that's worth aspiring to for a lot of people because he's done well in life from the outside. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm not saying that this is a conscious thing, but it turns out that Do Donald is an extraordinarily weak person. You know, so they identify with that, but they also see that despite that, he has been in their eyes successful, which means that maybe they can be too. It's very similar in this country to people who vote against their own self-interest in this way. You know, they may be struggling financially, but they're perfectly okay with tax cuts for the enormously wealthy because, you know, they might be enormously wealthy someday too. And they're not going to want to have to pay more than their fair share of taxes. It's that kind of thing. You, you say that he's weak, but there's many, I guess, debates and different parts of his story you could bring in to, to argue that either way. One thing you, I think is pretty clear, though, is he's very resilient. To see him at his age so energetic at those rallies, to see him bounce back from COVID, to see him carry on in the face of a lot of opposition during his presidency seem to suggest very strongly to me that there is a lot of fight in that man. Okay, but he's the most enabled person I've ever known. He has been carried through life uh, to a degree that, that other people never are. As for COVID, you know, not everybody who gets COVID gets really ill, yeah. first of all. Secondly, he had access to the best healthcare on the entire planet. He had access to drugs nobody else has access to. So he kind of had a huge advantage there as well. Um, and as for the rallies, I mean, what is he doing? He's standing up in front of a bunch of people and he's spouting lies. And he's, yes, he's feeding off of their energy because his narcissism requires that kind of um, unadulterated adulation. So I guess it depends. I mean, I see what you're saying, but mm. then you also need to look at, okay, why, why is this? Yeah. And he's somebody who's been protected from his own inadequacies and failures forever, starting with my grandfather and now continuing with the Republican Party. One of the intriguing things for me watching the whole Trump narrative play out, uh, something we've never really seen before, is that he can be interpreted so differently depending on your personal perspective. It's almost like he's a, a mirrored disco ball and depending on where you stand, you'll see a different thing reflected. So, for example, 
you might see his tax returns recently reported in the New York Times as a smart guy minimising tax, or you could see it as a, a, a failed, heavily indebted businessman heading for disaster. Right. Why can so many different Americans see such a different picture when they look at Donald Trump? Is he just a mirror for a divided society or is it something about him? <laughs> That's a great question. I think we're actually going to be spending uh, the rest of our lives answering that question. <laughs> um, but I think it's both. I think there is something unique about not just him as a person, but his history. You know, um, when I started writing the book, I was fascinated by how many through lines there were, starting with the myths my grandfather created about Donald to um, his enabling from, you know, the banks and the, the media and the Republican Party. So there is something that uh, something about him that makes him like a perfect foil, I guess. But he is also a mirror. He is. He's a mirror that's been held up to us that shows us just the ugliness that has always existed below the surface and it is is now out in the open. What we need to figure out as a country is how do we get to the point where we are no longer susceptible to somebody who is whose only purpose really is to divide us in order to um promote himself, enrich himself, protect himself. And that's that's going to take the work of generations, I'm afraid. Mary, let's turn to where things are right now. As the days go by since the election, um, Donald Trump's legal avenues to overturn the result are narrowing, um, but he still won't admit that he's lost. He's made numerous false claims of fraud and vote rigging. But apart from some tweets, he hasn't done much media. He's been pretty quiet by his standards. From what you know of him, what's going through his head right now? Uh, he's freaking out. He is in a position he's never been in in his life. Um, he has lost. He lost decisively. And nothing he can do can change that result. You know, nobody's bailing him out of this. The courts aren't going to do it. Recount isn't going to do it. The Republican Party can't do it. And to make it worse... Um, although he lost decisively, the Republican party fared pretty well in this election. They actually beat expectations. So Donald can't even blame his loss on them, which is why he's reduced to these ridiculous claims of voter fraud and rigging and all of that sort of thing. He's desperate. He understands also, or he should anyway, that as soon as he no longer has the protection of the Oval Office, he's going to be subject to lawsuits. He's going to be subject potentially to prosecution for various financial crimes for which he cannot be pardoned. Um, he has over a billion dollars in debt that you know banks may be much more inclined to call um, because – he is no longer in a position to do people favors. He's not just desperate. He's also terrified, I imagine. Mary, so do you think he'll bat the, the election loss away and, and any other problems that arise from it? Or do you think this could be the downfall of Donald Trump? I, I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for him to bounce back from this. Most primarily because... The worst thing that you could be in my family, I mean, certainly according to my grandfather, who's 
opinion was the only one that mattered was a loser. So this is a narcissistic injury, the likes of which Donald has never experienced. He's not going to, as I said earlier, change the results. There is an enormous amount of uncertainty ahead of him. And there are people who are his allies right now simply because of the power he currently holds. And that may change significantly uh, after he no longer is in power. And I'm and I'm including his children in that as well. So he may find himself in a position where he does not have the support that he's been able to rely on in the past. Well, it seemed that even Rupert Murdoch turned on him during the election. Fox News and the New York Post um, called out some of his misinformation around the polling day and the results as they came out. How will that be affecting him? I think it's having a huge impact on him because it, it it's it's a chink in the armor and it's going to make him realize that that you know he cannot count on things continuing uh, in terms of support in perpetuity no matter what he does which has always been the case in the past it has never mattered what he did he's always had somebody to bail him out or you know um use their connections or power to uh, elevate donald in some way so the fact that that Fox News, which has been an extraordinarily reliable partner for him, is kind of backing off is not a good sign for him because there really isn't any other entity with the same level of power and influence to replace Fox. So how do you see the next weeks and months panning out? I mean, looking even further ahead, there's talk of him running again in 2024. There's been talk of him starting his own TV network. Where do you see things going from this very strange point forward? You know, I'm most immediately worried about the next two months until the inauguration because the amount of damage Donald is doing is great. And the amount of damage he can do further is incalculable in terms of our national security, in terms of people's faith in the legitimacy of our elections going forward in terms of the legitimacy of the incoming administration. So, you know, that we need to get through that first, but hopefully we do. And then um, it's going to depend in large part, as I said earlier, on what kinds of things he's facing from a legal standpoint. I think he's much more likely to go the media route than the running again route for a couple of reasons. If he um, were to run again, that would mean for four years he's out of power and he's sort of playing a secondary supporting role, which would not be easy for him if it if it's even possible for him to do. Also, he's not a very healthy person. He has a terrible diet. He doesn't exercise. And he has, uh, you know, undiagnosed and untreated mental illnesses that are only going to deteriorate over time. Trying to have, have a role in the media gives him the constant adulation. It keeps the spotlight trained on him. And also financially, that that's a better way to go than running for office. Uh, so I think that's what we're going to see. But again, complicated by whatever is going to happen uh, in New York State in terms of uh, the charges of uh, financial crimes. And so what does this whole narrative mean for you? We're at an incredibly dramatic part of the Donald Trump story right now. You held off speaking out in the lead up to the 2016 election. You wrote this book uh, in the lead up to the most recent election. 
you write about a lot of pain that you suffered at the hands of Fred Trump Sr. and Donald Trump, um, including a protracted legal battle over your grandfather's will. How do you feel about what's happened personally? It's been a really awful four years, honestly. Uh, I knew that Donald was going to be disastrous in this position, but I did not realize the extent to which he was going to be enabled by the entirety of the Republican Party. So he's been allowed to do a lot more damage than he might have otherwise. You know, his his candidacy and uh, his four years in the White House have exposed a lot of um, deficiencies in our system, weaknesses in our system, and also, um, you know, the divisions he stoked uh, among us will take years to heal if they can be healed at all. So, uh, you know, as an American, uh, it's been a quite devastating experience. The fact that Joe Biden was elected does give us hope. I think we've been pulled back from the brink. But, you know, we need to be really clear-eyed about what's going fo- what happens going forward. We have a lot of work to do. And, uh, you know, it's not just this country that is going to be affected. It's the rest of the world as well. Do you want to see him go down? Would you like to see him broken by this loss? Would you like to see him in jail as a result of the legal problems he might face, as you've mentioned? I want to see him held accountable. Um, America has done a terrible job of holding corrupt leaders accountable in the past. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, Donald was able to achieve what he's achieved. I don't see how we can ever repair the damage unless he and everybody who's been complicit in the harm he's done to our country uh, is held accountable. Mary Trump, fascinating to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Mary Trump. And again, you can read her book, Too Much and Never Enough. I hope you enjoyed that special extended episode of The Briefing. If it is your first time uh, listening to The Briefing, we do an episode every weekday. It's ready so you can listen at 6am as you have your morning coffee or go for a run or drive to work or catch a train. My co-hosts and I will bring you the most important news stories of the day. And then we do a deep dive on a bigger story, all in a neat little 20 minutes. So if it's your first time, please jump on board on the weekdays. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you're a regular, thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you on Monday. A Podcast One production.